Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog on Pickled. I have been telling my story there since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today's guest comes to us in letter form. Ella has been a listener of the Bubble Hour for a while now, and she found it so helpful that she wanted to share her story as well. Now, she wasn't comfortable coming on air, and many of you feel that way. I know you can understand that. But Ella took hours writing her story out for me and asked me to read it for you on the air, and that's what I'm going to do today. So it's a little bit of a different show, but um, she did such a great job explaining her story. I think you'll really enjoy hearing it. Um, Something interesting about this episode is that Ella was pretty much a normie for all her life, as you'll hear. It wasn't until... Uh, She was older, and it was actually retirement that triggered problematic drinking for her. Now, if you're a younger listener and retirement is um, far in your future, you might think, oh, I can't relate to this. But, of course, you know by now that we uh, can always um, relate to one another. And and, um, to me, it's really a story of how change triggered something that laid in wait. And um, I think it's also a cautionary tale because I think there's a lot of listeners who haven't quit drinking yet. I know I just heard from someone not that long ago who said they kept drinking because of the stresses of having to just get up and go to work every day. And that maybe if their life was sort of a little less pressured, um, they wouldn't need alcohol to get through it. And so this is a this is a story as well for someone who's feeling that way because it's a reminder that, you know, if if alcohol is going to get you, it's going to leverage whatever it can, and it can tell you. It, well, it lies to us, right? <laughs> Our addiction like messes with our mind to tell us there's a million reasons why we can drink and so on the one hand it might tell us it's because we have to work so hard every day and here in Ella's case it got to her because she didn't have to go to work and so all that unstructured time made it seem just fine to use alcohol to cope anyway um, I'm going to uh, read to you the words of Ella and I hope that you uh hear yourself in some way in her words. And Ella, I know you're listening, and uh, I just start with immense gratitude for all the time that you put into this. Hello, Jean. This is Ella, and here is my story for the Bubble Hour listeners. Thank you for the opportunity to be of service to what I call the recovery web out there by telling a little of what it was like in my life, what happened, and what it is like now. I've been so impressed and aided by all of the Bubble Hour episodes featuring down-to-earth and compelling stories by your guests. I hope I can do my part to contribute by writing in. I'm just a little too nervous to do a live spoken interview. I hope, though, in some small way, I can give back for the huge benefit I've gotten. So to set the stage, I'll be 61 in a few months, and by the time you read this, I will have three years sobriety, which I achieved in AA. I'm retired, I've been married 30 years, and have no kids by choice. So let me backtrack a bit now and give you the chronology, chronological story to make it simple. I do not feel I was born an alcoholic, as I have heard many people say. I was not raised in a house with a lot of alcohol around or drinking taking place in it. When my mom tried fancy French recipes with wine, we kids could tell it was in there and refused to eat the food. 
I had an older brother with a genetic mental disorder that caused him to develop slowly and differently mentally and behaviorally than regular kids, in quotes. I had two younger sisters as well. I remember a growing up that had tension at home when my parents had to deal with issues related to my brother, which was his unpredictability and the fact that he wasn't going through regular school like the rest of us. There were some financial setbacks as well that I was aware of, as kids often are. Most of our relatives lived far away, and we only saw them occasionally. We had a neighborhood group of kids, and we hung out together by our houses, but not anywhere else or at school. So I was a happy kid. Looking on the bright side, I had lots of energy, and I still do. I loved animals, the outdoors, camping, sewing, piano, high school pep squad, and so didn't go on dates in high school. Just the proms and junior and senior year and pregame sort of parties, but drinking did not feature for me, even if others were going hard at it. I loved school because the environment there was predictable, and I loved reading and learning. I was a wallflower and a bookworm. I was raised Catholic and did communion and confirmation, and we went to church as a family. Looking back, all this was really by rote for all of us and something my parents brought to the table because they were raised that way. That stopped abruptly when I went to college as I was never invested in religion. There was alcoholism in the family that sprang up unexpectedly. When my mom divorced my dad my senior year in high school to be with someone else, he was forced to move out and immediately became a drunk. It was fast. I remember that smell of vodka on him and seeing the giant bottles in his new apartment when we went to visit. I later learned from him that his mom was an alcoholic. His mom and dad lived near us, but we only saw them on Thanksgiving and only stayed for turkey dinner. Well, later dad told me grandma was allowed to start drinking when we left, so naturally she didn't like our visits. I came home just before my 17th birthday for college at the other end of the state where I knew no one. My mom later moved there too with my sisters after she married her boyfriend. I only saw them at school breaks and for Christmas. I had to earn my own way in life. I worked while I went to college, and I remember some parties where I got sick on red wine, but it was not a feature throughout college. I had determined not to have babies because there were others with my brother's condition in the family, and I could not conceive of dealing with that myself. My two sisters had neurotypical kids. I got a great job after college and my husband met my husband and got married at 30. He was quite a bit older than me. We had busy careers and did not go out to dinner much or host parties. Our friends were all having big families and the no kids aspect meant there was not as much in common after work. I would overdo it sometimes at weddings of our friends and be so glad the next day when it was all over to normal. I became a fit person and started going to exercise classes and hosting running races and even marathons. I watched what I ate. Alcohol did not fit into that picture at first. Again, you would have called me a normie in AA parlance if you met me there. Now, I just want to pause at this part in Ella's story because looking back on what she said, we would have called her a normie, but you had heard some different things there. There's the genetic component of alcoholism in her family. For her, for her father, it was set off by a negative life change. 
she grew up, grew up with a sibling with a disability, and that can set up from what we've learned on this show and in books like Codependent No More. We know that having um, a sibling or a, a person in your household with a disability can lead to codependent traits for family members who learn to put uh, anticipate other people's needs and put other people first. Um, We've heard in Ella's story um, that she is a high achiever. She's very driven. Things like um, races and marathons and and um, putting herself through school, you know, that really shows that drive and uh, a sort of high achieving that is often characteristic of someone uh, whose personality trait can lead them into an addicted pathway. And um, just a lot of commonalities from other stories we hear. And yet, at this point in Ella's story, she is a normie. So let's go back to what she has to say. You may be wondering where this story is going now. Well, the worst days of my career happened at the peak in 2001, just before 9-11, when the startup I worked for failed, like a lot of tech startups. I had made all the choices before that on where I worked, and then suddenly I was fired. We were all fired at that company. I never got another career job after that. Lots of job searching, and my husband took an early retirement, so I moved into volunteering work, and that was great for a while. My mom died shortly after 9-11 from cancer, and I had flown out every month to visit. I was stone cold sober. This did not launch me into drinking. From 2007 to 2015 was my slide into alcoholism and my personal rock bottom. It started with my full transition into menopause, and I have later read that this makes a difference in how women process alcohol. The start of cruising and travel was the launch pad. It started slow. I was faced with these huge buffets and food layouts and lounge happy hours on the cruise ship and travel locations. I was stuck in situations on the ship, which I had never experienced quite that way before, where you're physically in a pretty small space for days at a time. And I really did like the cruising and the ports and the shows, but this one aspect was just too much for me. So I started drinking at first because I thought it would keep me from the buffet. And then it got to be more and more habit, and I could never stop at the pleasant buzz that I liked. That buzz that I used to get when I was at a wedding, say, and just had that first glass of champagne that made the day sparkle. My husband drank, and sometimes a lot, too, and there were times when we both had too much. The difference was that I got there quicker, and it got messy with slurring of words in public and even worse back in our room. And then it progressed to drinking in the morning, and I knew that was wrong. So I started hiding wine at home. Red wine keeps a while in the cupboard and moved to vodka. Ding, 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 ding. This is me inserting now. Red flag, red flag. <laughs> hiding, drinking alone, drinking in the morning. These are all uh, signs of transition. Back to Ella's story. I had the little airline bottle-sized plastic containers everywhere and even took them on planes as if they were shampoo. I always finished them before the plane landed, even when I told myself I would not. I thought I hid my drinking, but my husband had started asking me, have you been drinking? And I would quickly say no. 
we moved to another state in 2012, and he even said he thought maybe he should stay and I should go there and we live apart because I was drinking like I never did earlier. We moved together, and each time I was out of control, I promised to moderate. You see, we knew nobody who was an alcoholic other than my dad, who, by the way, had remarried after my mom did and stayed married until the second wife died in 2013 of cancer. When my sister completely fell apart and became an alcoholic before I did, a ding, 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 another red flag. Uh, I'm inserting an editorial here. Uh, the genetic component is, is rearing its head. Uh, sorry, back to Ella's story. When my sister completely fell apart and became an alcoholic before I did, I heard all about her trips in and out of inpatient treatment, but never was a 12-step program mentioned. I did not know, I did know, sorry, I did know there were meetings where he stood up and said, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And I knew that Friends of Bill meetings meant AA on the cruise ship schedule, but that was about all. My condition, my physical condition, got worse. When I first drank, I lost weight as alcohol replaced food, and I kept up my workout regimen. I was thrilled. I had great clothes for travel and the cocktail party. Well, that only lasted a few years, and then the puffy face and the rating of the fridge while drinking set in. My husband and I talked a lot about what my problem was. Honestly, today, I can't believe I did not run into AA. In all the women's magazines I read about drinking water in the morning and how to cure a hangover, when I got to an article about quitting drinking, I skipped it. I knew deep inside me I was in trouble, and I could not face how I would do things in my married life with only one of us drinking. I had no friends or family to show me that this could be done. Our best friends didn't drink at all, and we didn't have a lively social life at home, only while traveling, so I did not see other couples that had one drinking and one not. During this time, I tried non-alcoholic beer. I quit for 30 days along with my husband because a really long travel had made us realize we felt bad from all the excess of food and drink, but never was a decision made to just quit, only to change it up a bit and then carry on. By 2015, I was drinking every day, including mornings. I hid alcohol. I even fell downstairs backwards at an airport. I got drunk because our flight was delayed and we missed a connection. I could not even deal with this very small setback. At home, before the few going out occasions, I pre-drank. I had learned how to drink beer, which I hated previously because it was more available in our travels. I found out there was an 8.9% alcohol beer and wow, that's almost wine. And I drank that. I looked at the percent on beer tasting menus and only ordered the top numbers. I didn't care about the taste of any of it. Vodka was still my preference. No mixers needed. The worst thing here was that I was just doing this to numb out of my life. I really don't know why this habit started, but nothing that used to give me pleasure before was making me happy now. The old me was gone. I just went through the motions. I'm ashamed to say that there was nothing wrong in my life. I was financially okay and traveling like many people dream of, but each day the best part was the middle of the night when I drank alone. And I did not have to do anything or talk to anyone with a slur in my voice. I didn't even think of it as a craving, but a pull. 
if nothing was going on or if I didn't have to drive, I never drove drunk because my husband drove us places or I walked to the shopping, I drank. If conflicts arose and I had to drive or travel to see my dad, conflicts arose or I had to travel to see my dad and attempt to chat when we never before had ever chatted, I drank. I drank to avoid life. I distinctly remember two times in 2015 when I began reaching out for help. I went to acupuncture as I read it might help cravings. The doctor suggested I stop drinking, and I said, I didn't know how to do that. So he said, this might help me moderate. Well, it did not, but it was an interesting experience. And then I asked my GP what to do because I said to him, I went over the tipping point every time at cocktail hours where the alcohol flowed freely. A note on this, I grew up without being wealthy, and if it was free, I wanted as much of it as I could get, and this translated into over-drinking. He said to drink a glass of water between each alcoholic drink. He never mentioned 12-step programs or AA or even rehab. In all of this, I never had a DUI or any of the legal problems I I hear other people talk about. But this did not make my life any less miserable to me. So now, to the inflection point on August 2015. My rock bottom, as it were. Hubby and I were going to fly across the country to visit our best friends, first followed by a visit to visit our best friends first, and then followed by a visit to my dad who was so angry to be physically confined to a wheelchair and probably lonely as he had only his caregiver around and no friends. My husband and I did our usual beer drinking during the day before the flight, and I overdid it, as was recently usual. While running after my husband back to the hotel, I fell, and I hit my chin, and he had to drive me to the emergency room to get it stitched up. We still continued on our trip to our friends, and I overdid it at dinner, where no one else was drinking wine but me, and my friend asked if I was okay. Never had she done this. Obviously, my drinking showed. I was always nervous on these visits to our friends because I wanted to measure up. I passed it off to my friend as being worried about my dad, whose visit was next, and at dad's, I had a meltdown. He was mad about everything. I didn't know what to do, so I just swilled down a huge glass of a mix of every hard liquor in his cabinet and hit the floor, passed out. I had to go to the ER overnight. My husband went with me and stood by and learned that my blood alcohol level was so high that they were debating if I would even survive. The next day, I talked to the doctors and got them to let me out as I was in really good physical shape other than the drinking and tested out okay. They checked me out with some sort of medicine to combat or prevent the DTs, but I never got them. Now I'm just going to pause here and first of all mention that the DTs, that's a delirium tremors, that's part of detoxing from alcohol and um, uh, detoxing from that amount of alcohol can actually be extremely dangerous Um, uh, your blood pressure can be really off, and um, 
as we've said before on this show, actually detoxing from high levels of alcohol is one of the few detoxes um, that can be deadly. We think of of heroin as being, you know, the worst detox that there is, and it certainly is the most dramatic and, and even painful, but it's not usually deadly the way that an alcohol detox can be deadly. So I'm shocked, actually, that they let her go home, but um, I also want to point out, um, as Ella was describing, um, you know, hitting the eject button from her visit with her dad by pouring every bit of alcohol she could find into a glass and drinking it. Um, talk about checking out, right? Talk about escaping. And it makes me think of how I sometimes tell people that write to me that drinking is really a slow suicide and that we just take baby steps towards the danger zone. And by the time we get there, it's so normalized that we don't even realize the kind of danger, life-threatening danger that we've put ourselves in. And we don't care anymore because all we want, we can't imagine life without alcohol. So if, if life without alcohol is the only option, then we'd rather be dead. And that's how it becomes a slow suicide. And, you know, from what Ella has written here, to me, it sounds like it became as close to the edge as a person can go. And the other thing we know from this show is that it doesn't matter if we get that close to the edge or not. It's the, it's the leverage that alcohol has over us that it's just a matter of yet. It's like, I never got that far yet, but if you're on the trajectory, you're on the trajectory and the feelings are the same. It's just how far alcohol carries you before you stop. So let's return to Ella's story and see what happens next. Back at home that week, I first finished more of my alcohol stash and then poured the rest of it down the drain. Can you believe it? After all I've described, I had to have one last drink. I have not had a drink since. The next day, I saw my doctor to take out the stitches. Here was the key moment. My husband was with me and the doc said to go to inpatient for 30 days. I said I'd think about it. As we left the office, his nurse said, try AA. So I had a two-part plan, AA first, and then inpatient treatment if the AA did not help. We were planning a trip later that month, and I wanted to learn how to stop the madness in real time rather than go into seclusion only to be hit with life again on the way out. I gathered all the information about both AA meetings in my area and inpatient treatment. And then really the second dry day, I went to my first AA meeting. AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, has a tremendous network of websites and you will find all sorts of info there. It was really easy to get started. The first meeting was a woman's meeting and I was very excited about going as I had taken what I've now heard called the step before step one. I had made the decision to take action, and I already knew that it meant never drinking again, but never had before had I said never drinking again. Some have expressed the feeling that never was too big a concept to swallow, but it was not for me. I liked the black and white of it. In that first meeting, within 10 minutes, I felt at home. People actually clapped when I said I was new. Everyone knew what it took to walk in the doors, a bad state of affairs, usually. And still, they clapped. I picked up a white chip. 
to be honest, I did not know that I wanted to join the AA way of life, which is what they ask you. But I did want to get off my downhill luge of a life. I felt validation, acceptance, and above all, hope. And I knew that I should never drink again. And I gained the courage to go back home and begin my new path. My husband asked if it would help if he did not drink or have alcohol at home. Uh, Fantastic. (laughs) And I said, yes. He was even the one who asked if our supply of non-alcoholic beer was okay, and it wasn't. I checked with the sponsor I got two days later, and so we gave it all away, brand new cases of it that I had used to try to moderate very unsuccessfully. And then he did a wonderful and supportive thing. All those bills from several emergency rooms and the doctors came in, and he took them and he handled them. And this was his way of helping and letting me get on with the program. So what was my program, you ask? Well, first, I followed the AA suggested plan. I got a sponsor. She was 30 years older than me and within decades, with decades of sobriety. And I picked her because she was welcoming in the first meeting and seemed kindly. I called her every day and we met once a week and we went through the 12 steps and also the 12 traditions in eight months, reading from the big book as Bill sees it, that's another book, and what is called the 12 and 12 in AA lingo. She had sponsored many people and had a complete routine that she followed, and it totally worked with me. I went to a meeting each day and all sorts of meetings, the step meetings, tradition meetings, discussion meetings, speaker meetings, grapevine meetings, and at all different times and locations. And as an aside, it's of AA meetings, and you can learn about them on aa.org. Back to Ella's story. Within a month, I was off and traveling, and I emailed my sponsor daily and went to meetings in other countries and on my cruise ship. And every day I showed up, and that is where the power of the AA Fellowship showed itself more strongly. These people I met were incredibly welcoming. My husband came to non-U.S. city AA meetings for safety, and that went really well. He went to one at home, too, which helped create a bond between us, supporting my journey of sobriety. For the first year at home, I announced what my sobriety date was every morning when I woke up. I went on many cruises. I saved my AA date chips in a special jar, you know, one month, the two-month chips, etc., My service was confined to showing up and putting away at the end of meetings until I had enough time to sign up to lead meetings. On the ships where I knew my way around, I was an impromptu leader. I just want to pause and explain what she's talking about here. So service is one of the steps in the 12-step program. And being of service to others in some capacity is something that's important to supporting sobriety. And so in um, some programs, they ask you to give service just by like setting out the chairs and cleaning up after the meetings because alcohol makes us so self-centered and so about the alcohol that we forget how good it feels to just do something for someone else and to be relied upon. And so it helps you introduce that back into your life by doing things at the meetings, like setting up the chairs or cleaning up afterwards, or when you have a little bit more time under your belt to um, leading meetings. And so I just want to mention that because um If you're listening and you're not in a program, it might be really helpful for you to take some time after you listen to this podcast today to just sit quietly and 
ask yourself if there's a way that you could introduce service to others in your life uh, in some capacity. What could you do for other people that would support your recovery? I have one friend, um, you may know her, she's been on the show before. Her name is Anne and her blog is A in sobriety at wordpress.org, wordpress.com. And uh, she gives service to others by reading their blogs and by commenting and by going in Facebook groups and providing supportive comments for people that are reaching out. Um, that is service. It can be that simple. So um, back to Ella's story. So she says on the ships where she knew her way around, she was the impromptu leader. I allowed to, myself to eat more than normal servings of soft serve ice cream, and I ate the cookies and drank too much coffee at the meetings, telling myself that self-control there could wait, and maintaining an alcohol-free life came first. I did fix those things after two years sober. I had such a ringing in my ears and unsteadiness in the first week sober that I still felt drunk. I told myself this will pass. I stuck to it. I liked the steps. They gave me structure, which I needed, something to focus on when five o'clock rolled around and it had to be a different sort of happy hour for me. I always tried to be doing something related to the steps at the time when I would normally pick up a drink, writing or reading, to break the habit. The internet made things interesting, and it must have been a lot more difficult when the 12-step programs first began all those years ago. I downloaded a host of fourth and ninth step worksheets until I found the one that I liked. Hey, aside from Jean, homework, go and Google fourth step and ninth step worksheets. Even if you're not in a 12-step program, uh, this is my homework to you. Hit the Google, figure out what that is, and see if that's something that might be useful to you in your recovery. I typed up everything like it was a term paper and reviewed them with my sponsor. I wrote out my amends and did them in person. There were not many. Practiced my words first, and I was nervous. They went well. People talk about the pink cloud in early sobriety. I think I know what they mean now, but I didn't at first. I think the first year, I think of the first year as the pink cloud time because it was great not to be drinking and I was not yet looking at what I needed to do to replace alcohol in my life due to that occupation with meetings and steps and phone calls. So there was more to come that wasn't so rosy and is still in fact pretty hard. So I'm going to pause here and just talk about the difference between sobriety and recovery. It's really hard to engage in recovery, which is the healing and the self-examination and the internal changes that make life more comfortable for you if you're not sober. So first we get sober by taking alcohol and, if necessary, drugs, if drugs are part of your story. Um, we, we get down to ourselves. We get back to our essence by not checking out mentally with drugs or alcohol. That's sobriety. And as Ella says here, the 12 steps in the program are really good at replacing replacement of your drinking time with sober activities and sober time to help you stay sober. And then after that, when you get that under your belt, you start to work on recovery, which is examining what made life so uncomfortable that you needed to hit the pause button and numb all the time. And how do you need to change your life so that you don't need to numb out? How do you need to change your thinking so that you can engage with the world differently? 
Back to Ella's story. I am enormously grateful to the 8A tradition of sponsorship and all the time that my sponsor gave me. I would not have gotten sober without that and the physical meetings. They could have been other than AA meetings, but those are the most common, and they got me into sobriety. I enjoyed hearing all the stories in meetings and the sense of community. It was a break from being at home where I could just focus on and plan how I was going to be sober. And when people say they don't like a meeting, I would tell them just try another one. They all have their own feel due to the regulars that form the group conscience and the traditions of that meeting. I moved my meetings around a lot in those first three years. Some I don't go to anymore, but I got a lot out of them when I did go. I learned that it was okay not to reconnect with family if they impeded my sober journey. That has included my two sisters and a whole host of aunts and cousins who wanted me to do things that did not fit with my program. My AA friends here and the podcast hosts who have never met me but whom I felt I had met became my new extended family. With ups and downs, my relationships with my husband has improved a lot. He was so patient, unbelievably so. While traveling, I loved finding Friends of Bill meetings as a break from being around the drinking culture. It helped me not to be irritated that other people drank for an hour to be with my tribe. I forgot to add that I did not use other substances. I had tried pot and coke in college, and I did not like how I felt, so that was a passing trial period. Later, after 2007, when I got pain pills in the course of being treated by my doctor, I mixed them with drinking, and that was dangerous, but I never did uh, go for pills on their own. I have learned through my journey that alcohol gave me a way to ignore feelings and the unavoidable hard points of life. All my bustling in school and career and moving households were action steps that avoided conflict. I had never really gotten to know myself or my husband in retirement. Inside, I was sad because my career ended with a firing. And just because the entire company tanked, that gave me no comfort. I had to reconcile that inside and become a confident person in life again and do it without alcohol. My husband drank when we traveled and liked daily happy hour in lounges, but we did not bring alcohol back to the hotel rooms for him like we, like, like we used to do for the two of us. I had trouble with the lounges at first, and I still do at times. I monitored others' glasses and saw with amazement that some people left some. I know that still amazes me too. But I had no glass, and I didn't see much of that. I noticed who had only a Coke, and I created my own fruit with diet Sprite drinks so that I had something to sip on. I reminded myself of all the years of uncertainty about what would Ella do next that my husband had put up with. And I said a serenity prayer in my head, or I went to the restroom a bit more than normal, and it all passed. The next evolution in my sobriety journey came after about a year when I could no longer go with the flow on the AA God thing. No matter how many times I hear, pick your own higher power, just call it God because God is easier, or God means group of drunks. By the way, that's one I've never heard. Um, Ella says, I am an atheist, and that just did not do for me. So... 
Also, I did not accept the concept of a higher power either. I had been told and read that if I did not keep going to meetings and accept a God of my understanding, I would drink again. I just couldn't believe that. I was told that my self-will was causing me to not believe and that I would drink again. Just wait and see. Refuge recovery meeting held in the same spot as the AA meetings were held did not use higher power. And then sudden injuries at home kept me from regular meetings. And thanks to Google, I discovered podcasts as a way to be in touch. And that was life-changing. I found on iTunes the Bubble Hour and Unruffled and the Home Podcast and AA Beyond Belief. I just binge listened. I could not get enough. Every month, there seemed to be a new podcast. I found the alternative 12-step book, which is amazing. The writers were people not rejecting the steps, but writing them in words that they could understand. My recovery took on new life and new focus. My brain was engaged. I did not stop my AA program, but supplemented it to make a custom recovery path for me. It allowed me to make sure that I had a meeting in the ear, as I called it, for travel days when there was no meeting and no one showed up, and where I could not get to my regular meetings. I have ended up devoting more time to improving my focus and sober life than before. I love the well-curated speaker podcast. Sobercast Pod is 100% AA tapes of conference speakers and meeting speakers. And in their catalog of back pods on iTunes, I found one with Bill W., who is the creator, one of the founders of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, with Bill W. actually speaking. That was really inspiring. All of this came at a good time. In mid-2017, I had to put my father in hospice from afar and to be with him from his home bed before he died. I was sober for all of it, including going through his things and telling my brother that our dad had died. I had to step up and be a sober grown-up. This was almost two years sober. I had no meetings but a gazillion podcasts to keep me company as I went through his things. (sighs) Sorry, that's painful for me to read. Uh, It's been a year and a bit since I lost my dad and my father-in-law and um, losing a parent is tough and wherever you're at in sobriety. In fact, I just heard this morning from a friend who relapsed after her mom's death. And um, so for everyone that's feeling that pain, my heart goes out to you and um, I pray that you get through it sober. And I can tell you from personal experience that, um, if you can get through it without alcohol, you process the pain um, more efficiently. And um, the alcohol is just a pause button that drags out the agony. So anyone that's going through the loss of a loved one, um, I am, my heart goes out to you. And um, I encourage you to try and do it without alcohol. <clears throat> Back to Ella. After that, my focus expanded to include the things not covered in the AA program. I knew including diet and nutrition, positive life coping skills, and relating to a non-God world belief that does not rely on turning my life over to something I do not believe in. I I read and listen to a lot of business-related personal growth topics because those are really helpful. I've become more empathetic, I think, when I listen to people tell me that God keeps them sober and guides them with it with his or her will if that is what they believe and it helps them then great 
I just stop at accepting someone telling me that it has to be that way for me. This year, in 2018, I started tentatively emailing some of the podcast creators, and I was amazed and gratified to get responses. And listeners, this is how Ella's story wound up here. She wrote to me, and, and uh, I encouraged her to uh, write something that I could share, uh, which I am doing now. Um, Ella says, one thing that AA absolutely has right is that if you practice being grateful and help others, you help yourself. I am so thankful for all of the people writing books and creating podcasts and Twitter and Instagram feeds and putting time and energy into helping others. So that's all for now. I may do this one day at a time, but I do plan ahead. I don't plan to drink again. That's for sure. Bye for now from Ella. So uh, Ella, I thank you for your story. I thank you for the time that it took to write that letter, probably much longer than it took me to read it. And, um, and we are grateful to you. And listeners, I hope that uh, today was um, uh, insightful for you. And um, if you have feedback, I can certainly forward it, it on to Ella and, uh, and let her know um, if you want to express your gratitude for her. Also, if you would like to write something um, that you'd like me to share on the podcast, you can always do that. Send it to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and just let me know um, that it's something you'd like to be read on the air. Um, or if you'd like to be a guest, you can also let me know. Um, it is August now, and I am booking guests for the fall and winter months, And um, but we can even plan far into the future. And there's, there have been a few guests on this show who have booked uh, something three months down the line to help incentivize them to stay sober. So you have to have 90 days of sobriety to um, be a guest on the show. And um, so that can really, if you, if you put that mark out there, then that can um, help motivate you to get to that point as well. Before I sign off today, I just want to remind you of a couple of things that are happening. I'm going to be in L.A. on September 14th at the She Recovers uh, uh, conference in L.A. So that's, if you're listening to this later, we're in 2018 right now. So that's September 14th, 2018. Uh, At the time I'm recording this, there's still a handful of tickets left. So you can find that at sherecovers.co. I would love to meet you in person. I will be available there to chat. And I would be happy if you're scared to go by yourself, sit with me and hold my hand. I'd be happy to do that. Um, If you're feeling alone, this is an amazing place to be in the safe space uh, where everyone is just accepting and encouraging each other. I'm going to also be moderating a couple of panels um, at that event. It's also uh, Mackenzie Phillips. Um, Oh my gosh, it's so amazing. I'm just looking at the the list here. Um, Amy Dresner, um, Paula Williams. um, We have musical guests. The Legacy Award will be presented to Betty Ford, presented by Mackenzie Phillips and accepted by uh, Betty Ford's daughter. Um, Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, will be there. Um, It's just, you guys, it's going to be so amazing. Um, And there is a special event, which I will be at for people that are traveling on their own. Just, I just want to encourage you to come to that. 
Also, I am going to be um, at an event at Kripalu. If you go to sherecovers.co and click on retreats, um, you'll see the Kripalu listings, and I'm going to be there for one in November. And what we'll be doing is kind of having a meetup there. Kripalu is this amazing, like, mecca uh, in uh, Massachusetts that's like a yoga retreat space. It's an alcohol-free space, uh, beautiful food, lovely accommodations. We can do all kinds of like kayaking and hiking and meditation and beautiful things all day, or you can nap all day if you want to. And then in the evenings, we're going to be having sharing circles um, where we talk about what we learned that day to help expand our recovery bubble. Um, This event is open to people at in all types of recovery, in all stages of recovery. Um, And so I encourage you to come wherever you're at if you um, just want to connect and see what it's like and um, spend some time just soaking up the energy of other people in recovery and learning how they're doing it. This is a great um, experience to do that. If you have any questions about it, you can email me again, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will help you figure out how to get there. I guess that's everything for me today. Um, I am going now to have lunch with a financial planner who is probably hoping I have money. I don't. (laughs) I don't have any money to invest with her, but we're going to have lunch and talk about our grandkids, so that'll be nice. Um, What else am I doing today? I have a photo shoot this afternoon because apparently the headshots that I've been putting on all my stuff are total crap because I just do selfies. So um, I've agreed to grow up and provide a proper high-res headshot, um, which, you know what, I'm 51. I have a lot of age spots, and I recently gained 15 pounds, so I am not excited about this at all. So please hold my hand as I do this silly thing that, all grown-ups should be capable of doing. I won't say that I'm scared or anything. I've just been putting it off because I don't want to do it. Uh, Tomorrow I am interviewing um, Dana Bowman, uh, author of a new book that is coming out. Dana wrote uh, A Mom's Guide to Early Recovery, Bottled. That was a few years ago. She has a new book coming out, How to Be Perfect Like Me. You'll hear her interview next week when her book is released. I'll be talking to her this week and airing it next week. And yeah, so a couple of great things coming up. And I have a wedding to go to this weekend. Um, So all of you that are attending a wedding this weekend, which is probably like at least half of you, um, know that I'm doing it sober and you can too. I plan on wearing something cute and carrying a glass of water around with me all evening and escaping to the bathroom and looking at my online recovery groups for encouragement as I normally do. And Sunday is my 29th wedding anniversary with my dear, dear husband who apparently I never say his name on the show. His name is Ross. I met him when I was in grade 12. He still makes my heart go pitter-patter. We are best of friends, and um, and we are in love, and we are in like, and not every year of the 29 years has been as rosy as um, as it is right now. Some years have been really hard. There were the, you know, the really hard kid years, the grind, the years when I was uh, deep in my dysfunction in many different patterns, and we were neglecting ourselves and each other, and... Um, And sometimes uh, my own dysfunction, you know what, led me to be a really crappy wife. And um, 
thank God for recovery. Thank God for healing. Thank God that it is never too late to change your life and to get back to healing and get back to who you are. And um, I know for me, that has made me a better mom, a better partner, and um, a better person to be around. Anyway, I guess that's it for me for today. I am grateful to all of you for listening. And um, I'll be back next week with Dana Bowman. Thank you, Ella, for your letter. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We think you're strong Want to be free.